Good morning, Grid Connections listeners. I know I'm always telling you that I'm very excited to share today's episode with you, and in fact, I am, but I do think that this is actually my favorite yet. In fact, the recording with our panel turned out to be so entertaining, and we were having so much fun nerding out about everything that's happened in the past year in the automotive space, and especially around EVs and charging, that we went way over time. In fact, so over time that I had to break today's episode into two parts. We actually were talking for about a little over two hours. And the first half airing today and the second half will be airing next Tuesday, just in case you're wondering. But I'll also be sharing some clips in advance on our YouTube and social pages. So I definitely recommend checking those out as well in the interim to kind of give you a tease for what's coming next week. But let's start with today. So in this two-part panel interview, we brought together some familiar faces. I had John McElroy of Autoline TV, Matt Teske, the founder of Chargeway and last week's episode, along with Lauren McDonald of EV Adoption. I wanted to have people all from this past season of the podcast, and together we share our insights and kind of expertise, if you will, of the most significant events that kind of shaped the auto industry in our opinions in 2023. And while preparing for this episode, I saw that there were really three big themes of EVs and really from the space in 2023. Those were charging, the new EVs that came out, and really the software connecting all of this together. In this first episode, we focus on charging and some of the new EVs along with the general automotive industry this past year. The first part will be focusing on the North American charging standard revolution, along with the further rollout of the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program, or NAVI for short, and then the growth rate of the current electric vehicle sales, along with really the impact this is all having on legacy automakers on the market. In the second part, we start with the role of Chinese EVs in the North American market, and then we talk about how software of the user-defined vehicle, as I kind of like to think of it, is really leading this revolution globally, especially for EVs. And then we wrap up with our predictions for 2024, but that's for next week. So buckle up and join us, especially if you're driving, listening to us, but we're going to be exploring the past year's standouts of the auto industry in this engaging and informative panel discussion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for more insightful conversations on the latest trends and innovations in the automotive world. And with all of that, enjoy. I'm going to let John uh, go first. Sure thing, Chase. My name is John McElroy um, with AutoLine. You know, uh, I'm a journalist who's been covering the, the industry from way, way, way back in the last century. And uh, we cover anything and everything to do with the industry on a global basis. I'm Matt Teske, founder and CEO of Chargeway. Uh, we have a mobile app and software platform that simplifies EV charging for every vehicle, for everyone, everywhere in North America. And uh, we recently released version 2.0 of the app and the uh, response has been great. And uh, regularly we work with uh, auto dealers and utilities and obviously drivers around the U.S. on how we can make the EV charging experience easier to understand for everyone. Yeah, and I guess just to add to that, if anyone is listening, uh, Matt was on just the previous episode. So uh, if you got questions about the new Chargeway app and some of the technology that's changed, highly recommend listening to that uh, episode. And then, yeah, Lauren, I think yours was great also around what we were seeing in 2023 around Nevi, and then John, your uh, insights to the UAW and all of that, uh, when that we were kind of in the thick of that back in the past year was super entertaining as well. But I think with that, I would love to kind of just go around with all three of you and what to you were maybe like the one big standout moment for each of you in the EV and kind of EV charging industry? 
Well, I'll take a first stab at that. I mean, I think one of the big surprises was the slowdown in the growth rate of EV sales, which seems to have caught just about everybody unawares. And it's important to, to point out, it's a slowdown in the growth rate. It's not as if EV sales are falling. They're not growing nearly as fast as they had been at the beginning of 2023. And, uh, and I'm sure we can get into more looking forward as to what's going to happen for 2024. Matt, what about you? Uh, well, I mean, I think, I mean, the growth rate uh, to, you know, to John's point, I think for industry uh, advocates, it probably came as a little bit of a surprise. I'll be honest, it didn't surprise me uh, just because of what I've been focused on for years is that we can only keep going back to the well of the early adopter mindset and hoping people will pre-educate enough that they just know what they want and they're ready to own and they're excited to do it. We're, we're kind of, we're getting into that place now where people are buying an EV because that's the brand they like, you know, oh, Lexus finally has an EV or Volvo has the one I've always wanted or whatever it might be. And what, what's happening is they're discovering it's not about buying a car. It's about buying a new experience with fueling and energy and everything else. And I think that we're, we're seeing the realities of when the general public isn't clamoring into a showroom to switch to electricity as a fuel, those cars are going to sit there because there's a lot of unknowns that they're not wanting to research on their own that are different from early adopters. So, um, yeah, I, th I think that that's going to become a very important topic here this year. Uh, yeah. And for me, Lauren? I actually, I have a bit of a different take than, than John. Um, cause the, the biggest moment for me was being surprised and shocked that the legacy automakers were surprised at, um, they didn't understand the market. They clearly, are failing at understanding the EV market and have an inability to forecast. Yeah. It just like boggles yeah. my mind, right? Like the amount of data these these companies have, right? They have multiple uh, like people in their research department, they're getting data from the dealers and stuff and they're surprised at what the sales is. So I was surprised that they were surprised um, Anybody that understands math knows that as a market grows and gets bigger, uh, even if the numbers units continue to grow, which they are, we're going to uh, increase roughly 50% year over year, the growth rate, because it's math, right? The growth rate actually declines because the denominator gets, gets bigger, right? Um, so I think the moment for me was just complete and utter... Uh, like not understanding why the, the legacy automakers don't understand math and have an inability to forecast because, you know, sales are growing. The other thing, which we'll, we'll get into, I'll, I'll get into a little bit later is my, uh, my EV pizza pie theory that sort of helps understand this, but, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just sort of stop there, but yeah, I just, it's just like boggles my mind. No, I appreciate all of that. And I think it is kind of funny because uh, uh, kind of listening to all three of you, those are all themes that each of you have been kind of ta been talking about for uh, definitely my, uh, Matt and Lauren for years now. And I know, John, mm -hmm. you've definitely kind of had your pulse on what's been going on in the EV industry. So I, that's, I think that's why I'm kind of excited to get into this. Some of this, I hope, will be um, uh, not just entertaining. I, I think there's going to be maybe a little, uh, as we've had on a couple episodes, venting of some of these issues that have continued to be. Uh, I, I think I always think of the scene from like Zoolander. This, is, this isn't coffee. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's Friday. I mean, uh, 
Uh, but I, I, I get what you're saying. It's I always think of the scene from Zoolander, and it's like I feel like I'm taking crazy pills or something. There's no one see that all of this is the same. But um, with, with today's episode, I, I broke it down to kind of three topics to recap 2023. And that was really around charging, which is unto itself its own podcast, kind of what we saw in the car and automotive industry. And then the third big component is like software and how this is playing mm-hmm. and disrupting this in- uh, industry so heavily. So with that, I, I think we'll just <clears throat> kick it off with uh, charging and what we saw in this year. And I think, in my opinion, the biggest takeaway was uh, what I've kind of jokingly called the Nax revolution or the North American charging standard revolution. I mean, about a year ago this time, it was announced. Everyone was laughing it off. It's like, no one's going to adopt that. And then in March, Ford kind of mixed things up and said, you know what? We're going to give it a try. And then from there, everything has changed and good or bad, it's thrown definitely the industry into some chaos as to what these specifics are actually going to look like now going into 2024. But uh, I I think real quickly, I would just love to get everyone's thoughts on how they saw this happening and what they think were the, the big issues for it. I think, John, especially since you're kind of in the heart of Detroit there, I'd love to have you kick this one off. Sure. Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious. You know, Tesla's got the best charging system of anybody. And uh, Jim Farley was the first to wake up to the fact that, hey, Elon's offered it. Why not take him up on his offer of being able to use NAX? And it instantly opens Ford's EVs once they get the the NAC plug uh, to many more thousands of, of charging stations and more importantly, reliable charging stations. And, you know, as soon as Ford uh, signed up, you, you knew General Motors couldn't be too far behind. And then everybody jumped into the pool. You know, even Volkswagen Group, which, you know, essentially is funding Electrify America, has decided, yeah, me too. I, I want to be in on that next thing. And now SAE's uh, scurrying around trying to incorporate that into its uh it's a uh, charging standard. What's that? J1772, I think it is. Uh, well, J3400. Oh, oh, sorry. J3400. Yeah. Th- thanks for the correction. Yes. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I Matt, mean. Matt and I uh, will talk about this. Just what we need more J's to. to yeah, yeah. To, to, <laughs> right here. Oh, thank God. An engineering acronym to show the yeah, public. Yeah. I'm so it excited. It always made me wonder when it was named J1772. It's like, were there 1771 other ones that just yeah. didn't make it? Or what? How? Why was that the number that was chosen? But I, I think that's uh, spot on because uh, one of the, the funny coincidences, and maybe you caught this, John, was the day, I think it was just last month, that the SAE announced the J3400. Uh, standard was now kind of finally cemented. That was the same day that the Volkswagen group said, yeah, we're going to Nax. And that to me was just kind of too funny of a coincidence not to have been uh, it, it, timed. Well, it I mean, wasn't given that a, how late they were to the party. Because, you know, several of the automaker holdouts like Stellantis, et cetera, basically said that it wasn't a standard yet. Right. And so until it exactly. was, and it still isn't a standard, right. It's still actually not final, but it's getting close. But um, it, so it, I actually I, I posted something on, on LinkedIn that morning and predicted that a couple more automakers would follow suit. And literally, yeah, within like two hours, uh, you know, uh, Volkswagen did and stuff. So that was that was sort of pretty much expected. But Well, yeah, I think what we're what we're discussing and again, for those, you know, Chase, as you mentioned, like a lot of your listeners, they're in the know. They know a lot of this stuff for those who might find this conversation and ask, what are they even talking about? I mean, at the end of the day, it, what Tesla designed was, it was designed with intent. 
And everything that was coming out of SAE with both J1772 and CCS was designed by committee. And you could tell. It was like, well, it's this big at home or on the road, or it's this big at home and this big on the road. And when you wield the thing, it's, oh, this cable's too thick. And also, you know, I mean, just go down a list of problems. And I was always just, just, I laughed every time I heard anybody say, we just got to get Tesla in line. They got to switch over to CCS here in North America. And I would say, anybody, anytime I heard anybody say that, I would say, you're dreaming. They, they have the best product out there for charging. And I mean, it ain't going to happen. Yeah. And even if the government came in and said, okay, you guys got to change over. I'm sure they would have gone to the mattresses to figure out how to say no. <laughs> and so what they finally proved was we have the best mousetrap. And to, and to Lauren's point about being just, you know, shocked about like, how did they, how did the OEMs not see this coming? I had a meeting with a very, very big OEM now seven, six and a half years ago when I presented Chargeway and said, this is what you should be thinking about for the, you know, the charging experience, why it's so fundamental to ownership, et cetera. And I will have a vivid memory of someone from that EV team from that OEM on the call, literally saying as the call ended, well, this was interesting. Good luck with your little project. <laughs> and I remember thinking they are so in trouble. Like they are, they have no idea. And the, what's scary is we have how many hundreds of millions and billions of dollars that have been spent around this lack of comprehensive understanding of how to build this product within their their ecosystems. And and to Lauren's point earlier, and and just what we've been seeing, I just look at it and go, how on earth did you not know? And what we're seeing with Jim Farley and you know Mary Barr and everybody else saying, okay, we're going to switch over to NAX. Okay, we're making this choice. Yeah, that's a waving of the white flag. Let's just be candid. I mean, they just they went oopsie. Every third-party network that, that, that has now heard that is like, uh, okay, so now what do we have to retrofit everything? Yeah. Is it adapter hell? I mean, that's what we're facing. And so there's so many things to unpack around the lack of comprehensive understanding about bringing these products to market. And the whole time Tesla's just been saying, we have had a public roadmap for you for a 15 years that you all could have been looking at and no one picked up on it. I, I think it's, it's Lauren's point. I think it's like, wow, how did that happen? It's like, uh, hubris is a cruel mistress yeah, i don't know matt, matt great great backstory to what you're talking about there so years ago i talked to somebody on the committee the, the sae committee that was writing that that charging standard and they complained bitterly about tesla they said you know tesla was part of that committee and we put this whole beautiful thing together and then they went off and did their own thing and they were all pissed off about it because they said this is going to hold back ev adoption you know we should have come out with one standard then only just last year I talked to somebody else who was on that committee and they said, oh yeah, Tesla was part of the committee and nobody listened to them. Nobody paid attention yep. to them. You know, it was little old Tesla. They hadn't even done much of anything at that point. Right. So it, it speaks yeah. exactly to what you're talking about. It's hubris, it's yeah. cor corporate culture. It's, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, the, the, the other thing yeah. to sort of follow on and Matt and I talk about this a, a, a lot, Chase, is, um, you know, Farley came out not because Tesla had a better mousetrap. It was because the current one they're using was failing them. The, the number one complaint yeah. at Ford on the Mustang Mach-E, the customer complaint from owners, was Electrify America. Number one complaint from customers, right? You may recall... Um, uh, that Ford launched like their charging angels thing, right? Like, like they were doing right. everything they could to try to fix the problem. I, I know an engineer inside the company, they had teams, they had like everybody trying to work on this and fix this. And so when, when I, I think it's, 
it's so important because the conversations we're always having that these are the early adopters. And if the early adopters <laughs> right. can't yeah, figure it out, right. how the hell is someone's yeah. grandma going yeah. to be able to even to, go to, to the next point, town? This was, you know, Jim started the waving of the white flags because when he got on that Twitter spaces or whatever they call that thing, um, he didn't say it, but what he basically was saying was um, that Volkswagen funded charging network failed us. We put everything on them, right? And yeah. it didn't work. And so we're going to get into bed with our arch enemy competitor, right? Like, think about that. They literally said, we're going to turn to our biggest competitor in the EV space to solve our charging problem, right? And then everybody else yeah. just caved, right? And now I'm not saying it wasn't the right answer, well, but it, it wasn't like this strategic, smart, forward-thinking, proactive decision, it was, oh, shit, our existing solution failed. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah. No, it, reactive, 100% reactive, yeah. And and that's why I, I find it so, in like, as, a, as a, someone who's in this industry and someone who cares about its success, it is insulting when we hear things like, you know, I mean, I'll just be blunt, like hearing the Biden administration say, you led, Mary, <laughs> you led on EVs. When that happened, and and frankly, I you know Elon's a lightning rod for all the things that he you know says and does sometimes. But at the end of the damn day, that was insulting. It was ridiculous, and anybody in the know was We're like, "You've got one. to be kidding me!" It was such, yeah, it's it, yeah, it's just it's yeah, it <laughs> well, was just such know, it was such Biden a may ridiculous not have even moment. Believed it, you know that was said for political purposes. Well, that's political yeah, pressure. Right. Yeah, let's, right? let's like yeah, no, John, I want to hear your thoughts on that. What what yeah. what do you think? Well, look, you know, uh, the Biden administration is beholden to the UAW and the UAW mm -hmm. hates Elon with a passion. They hate anything to do with Tesla. They, they despise the company and Elon especially. And, and Joe knows he needs them uh, for next year's uh, election. And, yep. you know, you, yep. you saw today 33 Democratic senators came out and warned the non-union automakers, including Tesla, don't you dare hold back the UAW. It's all political posturing. You know, they're, yep. they're telling the automakers, yep. stay out of the nose of these guys trying to organize your plants. Well, you know, hello, 33 senators. Maybe you should keep your nose out of it, too. <laughs> it's true. No, and then that's, I think, for people that are on the outside of our conversations that we all have daily looking into this, I'll be honest. I think the general public, they, they see through the BS. I think oftentimes they just, they just kind of go, really? Like, you know, I mean, is that true? Because look at the stories in the last two weeks about, this flagship Ultium GM product that's it's finally coming to market and oopsie poopsie, the software in this is not working out. And what was a big thing that was touted from, from GM saying, we are going to pivot from everything. We're going to do our own software. They are working with Google on some stuff, but it's, hey, no CarPlay, no Android Auto. It's, you're going to live in our world. So on one hand, they understand what Tesla has done, but on the other hand, they don't know how to execute it effectively. And I think that is coming to light very quickly and painfully. And I think in the end, what's that going to do for EV adoption? It's the same conversation we we're just having about CCS. It's like, well, which was the better solution? It's like, well, Tesla had a better approach to infrastructure and connector design. They have a better approach to software. Uh, and I think we're kind of seeing this repetition of Volkswagen had that problem. GM had that problem. Ford had that problem. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I think that, I mean, this is, again, a very big conversation to always unpack. But I think what we're seeing overall is that 
the, and as Lauren pointed out earlier, the lack of appreciation from the legacy OEMs around what do you fundamentally need to understand to bring these products to market? And, and as John pointed out, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's a lot of it is just posturing. It's just like, how can we make it represent in a way that's going to work for us from the way, you know, kind of the ways we've always done it. And it's not the same game. They actually have to bring more to the table. Um, and we're seeing that. And, and the worst of it is it's going to hurt the industry because there's a lack of really doing the work well and more just kind of like kicking and, the can and, down the road. And Matt, like. how do you think so. the executives at Honda and Acura are feeling right now about uh, hitching their pony to the Ultium platform, right? Well, they already pulled out. I mean, they, they, well, they, they already have, said, they still have the two back on, that guy, but... on the Ultium platform. But then after that, they're oh, switching. The prologue and yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's just, at the end of the day, I say to people anymore, very simply, there are four fundamental factors that make an EV ownership experience positive. The car itself, inside and outside, legacy OEMs, boy, do they do that well. They do that amazingly well. The other three fundamental components are battery, software, and infrastructure. Those four pieces make, you got to have those things aligned beautifully. Tesla, they've got the battery software infrastructure done really well. We could all argue about how they can improve on the manufacturing side of it. Um, but at the end of the day, for an EV to actually be a functional car, you can kind of overlook things of aesthetics and be like, mm, yeah, the fit and finish that material on the inside could have been better. But boy, their software is second to none. Their batteries, yeah, they're well integrated with their software. And boy, are they well integrated with an infrastructure that they manage. I mean, that's, that's confidence in EV ownership. And the legacy OEMs, have not still figured that out and maybe they are figuring it out but then what's going to happen is it more waving of white flags yeah we'll just license that software from tesla i mean honestly yeah i i'm curious i mean tesla's alluded to like oh they're going to license fsd and some of these other things which could happen i don't know but um i i think just kind of going off that before don't i don't want to go too far off topic but i i think what you're also hitting on is just kind of insulation of thought uh, between mm -hmm. not only the executives, but like you go on Twitter, you go on anything and there's pro EV, anti EV people talking all the time about yeah. these kind of, uh, essentially the same scenarios we keep hearing like, Oh, EVs aren't going to save the planet. EVs are going to save the planet. And what's so interesting to me is the best thing I think, and I, I Jim Farley did this. He goes on a road trip in a, a lightning. You just got to get out there. And in my experience, I mean, I just did uh, a road trip back from, uh, Steamboat Springs to back to Ben, which is about 11, 1200 miles each way. And everywhere I went, not a, uh, all I had was positive curiosity. Some people said, maybe it's not right for them. Maybe they're not ready for an EV, but they were curious about it. And I think too many mm -hmm. people get stuck, kind of sucked in into either their uh, kind of own bubbles of the logic behind it, or even what they've heard the detractors say about it. And there obviously are those people. But when you start getting in the practice, like the real world, the majority of people aren't these people we're talking about or the early adopters. No. And there is, it, it kind of goes back to even the conversation we were having last week, uh, Matt, around just kind of like the optimism of where the industry is going. There's a lot of short-term craziness. Uh, and I think oh, 2024 yeah. is going to have a lot Chase, of that. Just, but I, 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 I just, sorry, yeah. It, interesting follow on that that sort of gets back to sort of the the shock and awe from from the legacy automakers <laughs> and ford and gm that said oh we're gonna we're gonna go back and focus on hybrids regular hybrids and, and plug-in hybrids and i know three or four years ago i was in a i was at the hamtramck factory in uh in uh uh, outside of Detroit, where they were launching the the Hummer and the new plant and stuff like that, and I got to go back in a private room, me and about four other riders, um, 
and and talked to uh, Mark Royce, and I asked him about like you know why they killed the Volt and all that kind of stuff, and basically said we're going to two platforms, ICE and BEV, and nothing in between, and it just it it boggled my mind because uh, you understand it from a cost perspective, right? And you understand it from a simplicity perspective, only having two powertrains platforms instead of you know four or five. But from a market consumer adoption perspective, it just doesn't make sense because we know to your point, Chase, you know, right now, about 1% of the vehicles on the road in the U.S. are BEVs, right? There are 282 million non-BEVs, whatever it is on on the road, right? It's going to take 40 years to transition the U.S. population and, and vehicles out, which means a lot of people are going to go from an ICE vehicle to a regular hybrid, to a plug-in hybrid, to a full BEV. Some are going to go ICE to BEV. Yeah. Some are going to go ICE to hybrid and stay, whatever. Some are going to go ICE to plug-in hybrid. The, the reality is, is, you know, overnight, the population is just not going to give up their ICE vehicle and go in and BEV, especially in the middle of the country, mm-hmm. right? And so... And GM and Ford, which are strong in the middle of the country, like completely either didn't understand that or didn't want to, right? And, you know, they should have focused on like a plug-in hybrid lightning, et cetera. Like, you know, that's why the Ram, the Ram mm-hmm. uh, extended range plug-in hybrid is going to be fascinating to see how how it's going to do, right? I, I think it's going to do really well. We'll see. But, you know, they just, it yeah. just like, again, I know I'm sort of, being melodramatic here. I, I, think, I, I think this is kind of one of the areas. understand the market. For sure. And I, I think this is a little bit of one of the areas <clears> we disagree <throat> a little bit. And it's not that we nece- necessarily disagree. I'm just waiting to see that P has proved to actually be what people want. Um, John, I'd like to get your thoughts on this because you talk a lot about how you think one hybrids in general are just marketed horribly and that they should be, it shouldn't be like, this is a hybrid. This is PM. I was like, this car gets you 50 miles per gallon. Right. Yeah. No, that, that's what I've been saying all along. Look, like everything else in this country, even hybrids have been politicized, right. you know, first the anti green movement attacked hybrids, you know, now they've sort of forgotten hybrids. They're attacking pebs. Yeah. But I, I told Honda yeah. years ago, you want to sell more hybrids, stop calling them hybrids. Because if you go to a cocktail party, a dinner party, meet with friends, and you start telling people, okay, guess what? I drive a hybrid. They immediately categorize you. <laughs> you know, you're a left-leaning, greeny, tree-hugging, you know, eco-whatever. And so, you know, what I, I said to Honda, and now I'm, I'm telling everybody, I, just say, hey, you, you want to get that one? That one gets 50 miles to the gallon. That's our high mileage model. Don't call it a hybrid because it's become stigmatized. Now, having said that, it, it, uh, hybrids are starting to gain more general acceptance. And again, I think it's because everybody who's anti-green is attacking Vebs. Yeah. Well, it's funny. What, what you're bringing up is, is yeah. number one, it's all about branding and communication. And number two is this all has to do with fuel, 100%. Everything about what we're talking about. If you're talking about going from a gas car to a hybrid to a plug-in hybrid to pure electric, that is the lily pad process of switching from pure gas to a mixture of gas and battery that you don't plug in to a gas and a battery that you do plug in to a battery that you plug in. And all of that has to do with the user experience of the car of the person who buys it says, how do I fill this thing up? 
That's it. Well, and I, and we've we've over we've yeah. overthought this and overcomplicated the hell out of it for the last twenty years, basically. But uh, John, I think you're spot on. It's like if you know that it's, it's stigmatized, don't say hybrid. But then the problem is we see the cute stuff that comes out of OEMs where they're saying things like our electrified fleet, where they say things like this is electric. And my response is, if it doesn't get filled up with electricity, that's not electric. And somewhere, somehow, we have to have even government regulation like FTC or something say, hey, look, you guys can't do that because that's also adding further confusion. And that's to the point of Chase on our last call. People see you in your car and they go, yeah, but where's the gas go in it? It's like, no, it's a pure electric. Yeah, but where's the gas go in it? That's because they equate gas to cars. Totally. And we have a fundamental yeah, lack of understanding around fuel. And like I said, last uh, last month, <laughs> someone came up to me and I'm like, I don't, I mean, Tesla's cool. I get it. They got the software, but I, I really don't get why I would buy that over a Toyota. And I was like, well, why is that? And they said, well, you got to put gas in it. So what's really, why is this company worth so much? And I mean, and it's not like this was an unintelligent person. They just are like most people and pretty passive in following the, the automotive industry. Yeah. And yeah. to show that that's still a thing. And I, I think there's there's two things I want to say real quickly that uh, I know, Lauren, you're probably going to want to refute because this is uh, kind of bashes the whole PHEV thing. One, uh, I just want to re reiterate, John, I completely agree with you. They should just drop the hybrid. It just makes it more complicated. Just say you get good gas mileage. And this is the exact reason why my uh, mother-in-law, uh, they recently, I guess past summer, they bought a Tesla Model Y replacing an old Mercedes. And they liked it, but they had another car they were going to finally replace. And so they replaced that car with the Volvo XC90 PHEV thing. And every issue she's had with it has been on the hybrid side. And she's been constantly disappointed by how slow it charges and all of these other issues. And what does she do with it? She rarely, she, if she's at home, yeah, she'll plug it in it. to do like around yeah. town, which is great. Most people don't do that. And it's only because they already had a Tesla charger. Most of the time, she just fills it with gas. And I think that kind of defeats, a, I mean, yeah, you're probably getting better uh, MPGs, but like for all the other infrastructure you have to put in a car to make it a PHEV versus just focus on making it like a traditional hybrid, I don't know. I'm, I'm, well, I, I, in I know, theory, I agree, I agree in theory it sounds great. In theory, it sounds great. In so, practicality, so the, I still mean, not so we, well, But we, prove me we, wrong, Lauren. Prove could, me wrong. We could argue about plug in hybrids for like two hours, right? And uh, <laughs> the, re the reality <laughs> is some people do not plug in their plug in hybrids, right? The reality is a lot of people actually do, right? And um, the, the, there was it's it's old data at this point, but sort of in the early days, um, there was some really good analysis around the, the Chevrolet Volt, right? And basically, it was about eighty percent of the miles driven were on electric, and that the majority of the Volt drivers plugged in. And you know, if we had John Volker on, he would be like, you know, screaming at this yeah. point, right? Because um, that's his whole big thing. I was just going to say that. The, do people actually plug in? The reality is if you make a quality plug-in hybrid that has 40 plus miles of range and the right buyer, they will plug it in 99% of the time. Now, if you have somebody that goes and gets a Jeep Wrangler 4XE and gets a lease of $289 a month because of the federal tax EV credit and Stellantis wanting to sell a bunch of them, those people don't even know it has a plug, right? And and they will never plug right. it in, right? So, 
you know, and it only has what a 21 miles of, of electric range. Right. But so I think there's sort of, it's, it's, it's the problem is not the technology, right? The problem is, is, is it a compelling plug-in hybrid and are we educating sort of the buyers around it? Right. Um, For sure. And, and I, I, yeah. I don't want to cut you off, but I realize we do have to, we, we've been focused on charging for quite a while. We're now kind of slipping to the car side of stuff for sure. But uh, the one thing I wanted to cover also, and just get, especially your perspective on Lauren, is the Nevi side of this. We've kind of talked about charging around uh, the feds and how they've kind of been looking at this. And I just want to, since you are kind of the king of figuring out how this is being rolled out, what has been your takeaways from 2023 and anything uh real quickly that you're optimistic about going into the next yeah, year. Yeah, so um, as of this very moment, I'm looking over here at my printout, um, 27, 20, 26 states have uh, opened their NEVI RFP or actually awarded. Um, so in essence, half of the states have, have started the process or actually, um, uh, when, what is it, uh, awarded, uh, 12 states have actually announced awards, right? So we're actually moving pretty quickly. There's been a lot of articles and headlines um, around how slow it's moving, but but we have to rec- realize that the, the final rules actually weren't approved until March. This is an entirely new procurement process. Some of the states like Minnesota actually had to pass a law to be able to actually do use the, the, the NEVI funding procurement process, right? It's very complex. Every state is developing their own RFPs. They don't know anything about EVs and EV charging, right? So the fact that half of them have already like released RFPs and stuff is, is actually fairly Im- impressive. Um, now we have some states that may not even release their first RFP until 2025. The laggards, like Wyoming and Missouri and South Carolina, uh, so we have this real dichotomy of like Ohio, Maine, Pennsylvania, and Colorado are already on round two, right? And you know, and and so they're moving very quickly. So. The, the sort of the short answer is, is, is we're doing actually better than the headlines would say, but a lot of states are just clueless and moving sort of really slowly. Um, but the sort of the, the larger picture is, is people are putting too much importance on NEVI from a numbers perspective. NEVI is going to fund a very tiny percentage of the DC fast chargers that, that are going to be deployed. We had over 10,000 deployed new fast charging ports deployed in the U.S. last year. Eight of those were funded by NEVI, right? In 2024, we're going to probably have, my estimate is uh, 13,500, 15,000 new fast charging ports deployed, maybe a thousand of those. So six to 7% will be NEVI funded. So it's, it's like NEVI is not building out our infrastructure in sort of volume and mass. What it is doing that's important, it's a putting them in places that the, the, the charging networks like EVgo and Electrify America haven't been putting them because they don't make economic sense. So it's what it's making them is more viable from an economics perspective to put out in the middle of Wyoming where nobody's going to put them. But that allows you, Chase, to go on those road trips. Yeah. 
I will say, it's funny you mentioned Wyoming. That was the closest I have come to yes. running out of juice right, in a right. long time. Those headwinds yeah. on I-80, uh, especially oh, yeah. when you're doing yeah. 80 miles an hour, uh, and even yeah. the trucks yeah. are, that was probably the closest I've been to in a while. And I had to do, once again, this is like yeah. even driving in a Tesla, it's as easy as it gets when it comes to that. I still had to do some math yeah. to kind of realize I need to slow down or I need to do something a little different to make sure yeah. I get there. Uh, and that's just still not practical for most people. And, and to your point exactly, there's a lot yeah. of Wyoming. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny, the states that are the laggards are some of the states Didn't you probably need it the most. It the yeah, most. just to sort of wrap yeah. it up, um, uh, I, I think the other thing that, that's important about NEVI is, or two quick things, is, is one is we actually have some minimum standards and accountability. I mean, 97% uptime is sort of a low bar, right? That means that that a charger is down 11 right. days a year, and we think that's okay. Um, but at least we have a minimum standard, and we have accountability because <laughs> if if you uh, win a, a Nevi contract and you don't meet the 97% uptime, the state can either take money away from you, penalize it, not give you f- further money. We haven't had that accountability before. Um, and uh, you know, and the other thing that, that just to sort of close out, I'll say is is the Nevi, the $5 billion of Nevi is attracting a lot of companies and, and business that are actually may not have sort of deployed and built before. Like it's, I call it sort of like the honeypot, right? And so it's actually having a spillover effect that a lot of, a lot more chargers and better companies are getting into the space with the potential to win money, but most of the time they're not going to win it, but then they're moving forward anyway, so. Yeah, actually, um, that kind of brings up two things real quickly. One, pop quiz, John, what does NEVI stand for? Since some people listening probably know, but don't actually know the Yeah, I'm sure the E stands for electric. (laughs) And that's about uh, as as much as I can tell you. Because I'm even trying to remember. It's National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure. Infrastructure. Oh, okay. Okay, nice. But, you know, Uh, here's my question to you guys, because you know way about more about charging than I do. I I question the whole uh, business model of public charging. And the reason I say that is try to find a gas station anymore that only sells gasoline. They don't exist. Why? Because they don't make their profit selling gasoline or diesel. Number one Mm -hmm. profit for a gas station, profit product. You know, those sort of rotisseries with hot dogs on them. Have you ever number one profit? for gas stations that carry yes. that. So they make their, their their profit selling hot dogs, lottery tickets, and cigarettes. And that, that's where they really make it. And so all these public charging stations, how do they make their profit? Well, selling gas or selling electricity. Yeah. So they, they buy it at wholesale, mark it up for retail, right? I'm not at all well, convinced that is a viable business model. Well, that that's not a viable business model, number one. But number two is most of the networks don't make their money off of selling electricity. Right. Most of the third-party networks, their entire revenue model is based on, we will sell you hardware and software to this municipality, to that B&B, to that mall, to that whomever. And then the revenue model they have is based on saying, we'll put your charger that you just installed on our network in this app, and then we'll charge you X dollars a month for a software subscription to have visibility into managing that thing. And that's what we're selling you. Then when the, we talked, Chase and I talked about this on the last episode, is then if there's a ribbon cutting moment, and then a day later, somebody backs into that charger and it doesn't right. work for six months. No one's mining the store, but they keep paying that software subscription and that network keeps making money. So the business model in that in that way, in my opinion, is what has really led to OEMs like Ford and others having this aha moment of, whoa, 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 wait a minute. 
you guys aren't owning the charging experience. You guys are just deploying these things with government grants and God knows whoever's going to pay you. And you don't even care if it's actually working. And they're like, well, not really, because we're making money. And <laughs> oops, sorry. And the VCs are all going, whoa, wait a minute. We just funded this. And that's what you, you what? And so all of a sudden, we're going to see all these networks that have been, you know, seen as, okay, that's what it's going to be. The moment, the moment Jim Farley said, we're switching to Tesla's connector and we're going to leverage the supercharger network. Every third party network just had to go, oh, God. You know, because they actually have to own the experience. And so the model, as you described, there is a, your first take on there's no money in, in in reselling electricity. There isn't. And every time an EV owner pulls up to a charging station where they look at the price and it says, you know, 89 cents a kilowatt hour, those who do the quick math go, holy crap, that's an expensive fill up. And so I agree with you in the sense that that's not a good model. And the model that does exist where people have been just basically making money off software subscriptions and not making good charging experiences, that's also damaging and it's not long term. Yeah, so, so what happens to the yeah, EV market? If, I mean, if, that, that might be yeah, a 2024 I mean, prediction because yeah. a lot of people are talking yeah. about consolidation, which we've yeah. already seen, uh, yeah. along with some just going out of business. But what, what were you going to say, say there, John, I mean, um, you know, the reality is, is the, the industry is shifting, right? So we had a lot of the charging networks, just as Matt said, their business model was basically to get grants and incentives. I won't mention some of the company's names, but there's, there's some of these charging networks that fundamentally are, are grant and incentives companies. Their, their business model is to get the grants that makes the business somewhat viable, <laughs> remains to see if it will be viable or not. Um, and then they go and they find a, you know, a, a McDonald's franchisee or a hotel owner or a shopping mall or whatever. They do a lease, they drop the chargers in. And, you know, just as Matt said, then it's about so software and revenue share and different things like that. But the, it, the industry is shifting. And so when I, I track, you know, sort of Nevian, roughly 80% of all the winning bids are from, uh, uh, either the convenience store chain slash travel travel centers, travel stops, or it's a charging network or other company that's hosting it at convenience stores, like chains and, and travel stops. So fundamentally, the, the industry is pivoting towards these large companies, the Pilot Flying J's, the Circle K's, the 7-Elevens, the Loves, all these. They're the ones that are now getting into the business. They're gonna dominate in the future. And so the model, John, is, is going to be just like gas, which is what they want is and what they're, they finally figured out is somebody sitting there with their car parked for 30 to 45 minutes while it's charging. They're inside getting the rotisserie chicken, getting the coffee, getting the lottery tickets, checking Wi-Fi, you know, getting the, um, you know, the the slurpy, like whatever it is. Right. And, and they're spending their time there. That's $20, right. That they just spent. Right. And then all of a sudden that experience combined with the charging actually is profitable. Uh, but, but just the selling the, the pennies, you know, I mean, gas makes what about four cents a gallon profit for, for most gas stations and ultimately electricity and charging is about the, about the same, right? But- uh, I mean, couldn't you make the argument the person who makes the most off gas is the feds, just with gas tax and everything else. Um, but I, I, I realize uh, this also another topic I think we could easily talk about for an hour because you're totally right. The profit margin 
and then you start getting into um, you look at some of the deals like VW or uh, Electrify America made for their cars for unlimited charging and that causes all sorts of conundrums at the actual charging locations if it works but um, one final thing on this topic so we can kind of move on to the car side of stuff what uh, one thing that stood out to me Lauren in our conversation was we kind of came to the agreement that Nevi funding was actually kind of slowing down the rollout of a lot of uh, DC fast charging chargers. Do you still feel that way or are you starting to see things kind of pick yeah, up and change? I, I think there, there was, there was this moment like six months ago where a lot of companies were sort of drooling over the, the Nevi funding. And so they sort of put things on hold. Uh, um, like I talked to like engineering firms and stuff who work with all the major charging networks and they said their business just dropped, stopped, just completely stopped. Um, and then I think what happened over the last six months, they started to figure out and realize, oh, crap, they started to, do the, even if we win, we're not going to win very much, right? Like the, the, the right. numbers like didn't sort of add up. And so then everybody goes, oh, we have to get back to what we were doing and just get back to our strategy and our plan of building these things out. And so I think it, it's actually picked up. And, um, you know, I have like, dozens of, of clients, Nevi clients in, in the space. And a lot of them sort of pivoted to a strategy of Nevi is nice, but it's, it's, a, it's a nice to have, not a must have. In other words, their strategy is we're going to build, you know, 100, 100 charging stations in 2024, whatever it is. And we're going to apply in several states for funding. If we get the funding, great. If we don't, it doesn't change our strategy, right? And so I think that's sort of the pivot mm -hmm. that's, that, that, that has happened. Well, that's good to hear. And I, I think what's really interesting with a lot of the stuff that you primarily I see on LinkedIn that you post for EV adoption and kind of the research you show is kind of going to John's point where there are a lot of the uh, traditional uh, DC fast charging companies that are applying for this, but a good portion too are like the loves, the flying J's, the pilots of the world that are also now trying to make that transition and get, get a part of the money that's being offered. So uh, once again, short-term chaos, yeah. but hopefully long-term ease for more EV drivers. So uh, finally, John, pop quiz again. What does NEVI stand for? <laughs> National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure. All right. We can at least say. <laughs> I was paying attention. Thank you. I, I didn't doubt that you were, but I'm glad that uh, this podcast, we, we, we strive for education. So I'm glad that you've at least learned that because uh, I know I've already learned a lot. So with that, let's actually get, I think, into the auto industry and kind of the car side of stuff that we saw in 2023. And um, I, I think there was a lot just around obviously probably the big car at least in the last month or two when it comes to uh, headlines or anything viral has been kind of the cyber truck finally delivering and i'm just kind of curious john as someone who's in the heart of detroit with all the news that's been made about this even though there's like i don't know maybe 20 on the road and maybe that's rounding up what what are takeaways especially with the manufacturers that are the ones that are the traditional truck makers of north america well, number one, I, I mean, there's a, a whole lot to the story, right? So uh, what we've seen so far is traditional truck buyers are not going to buy the Cybertruck. A, a, a small percentage of them might, but the, the vast majority are like, you know, th that thing just looks too goofy. I don't want anything to do with it. They're the most conservative buyers in the marketplace. You know, you can have my my full-size body-on-frame V8-powered or twin-turbo V6 pickup when you 
peel my cold dead fingers off of it. And, you know, look, look at who's buying the, the Ford F-150 Lightning. They are not pickup buyers. Ford has been stunned. These are people for the first time ever getting into the pickup segment. In fact, most of them have never even bought a Ford before. And so, yeah. you know, I, I'm thinking, uh, that, look, the, the, the Cybertruck is the greatest look at me, look at me kind of vehicle you can be driving down the street in. So I think it's going to appeal to people who would normally maybe look at, you know, a Land Rover Defender, a Porsche 911. I, I take that personally as someone who has a classic Land Rover yeah, yeah. Defender. <laughs> okay. But I will say, I have, <laughs> whenever I drive that thing, I, I've i been in a, quite a few different really nice cars. That thing gets the most attention. Yeah, right. I will say it's not it's the most like thumbs up and high fives. Right. But um, So <laughs> that, that's why I, I think uh, the Cybertruck, uh, my gut feel, and, and I'll leave it to Tesla to prove me wrong, it's not going to be in 150,000 a year kind of numbers. I, I think it's going to be a whole lot lower than that. Um, we'll, we'll have to see. But so there's that part of what the, the legacies are talking about. Oh, uh, that's not a threat to our, our franchise full-size right. pickup segment. Uh, but the, the smart ones, the people in the industry who, who really see Tesla as a threat, look at the technology in that truck and they are blown yeah. away. You know, from the yeah. way that the body panels are formed with the giga castings to an Ethernet system to 48 volts to, I mean, the list just goes on and on. It is the most technologically advanced vehicle that's ever been made. Yep. Yep. I think, landing, I think John, landing on that is the most important part. And, and to your point, the smartest people that understand what that vehicle actually is, is all about what you just described. It, it you know, it's a you know, sheet metal doorstop or something to people that look at it aesthetically, right? But when you get under the skin of it and you go, holy cow, they did some pretty crazy stuff to bring this thing to market and what it then lends to for the future of vehicle development, whether that's a truck or a car or what have you, that's the most important part. I think that, um, I think you're right on that. It's the look at me car, without a doubt. Uh, all my buddies that I knew back in California long ago that had two wheel drive lifted trucks, like, Boy, the cyber trucks for them, you know, because um, they weren't taking those things off road. But the, beyond that, I think, you know, Cybertruck and other vehicles that, that, you know, that came to market. I mean, Cybertruck got the most play, obviously. It got the most attention because it took forever to bring it to market. It is just a, an eye-popping thing. I think that, do I think they're going to get more sales out of it than others expect? I do. I really do. I think that the, the level to which people are justifying buying expensive cars for people that have the income to do it is kind of getting bonkers. Not kind of yeah, getting it right. is bonkers. It's crazy how oh yeah, give me a seven year loan on that hundred thousand dollar vehicle. I'll totally justify it. You know, it's it's happening still. But then you're also seeing on the vehicle side how we're seeing brands like Volkswagen and Mazda. I think it was yesterday they announced zero percent financing on sixty months to get into some of their vehicles. So we're seeing a turn back to we got to get more creative about getting how to move metal again. You know, and so I think that on the EV side of it, aside from Cybertruck, what are the standouts? Well, we're kind of getting to a place where we have a market saturation of it's all starting to feel the same from a vehicle perspective. So the differentiation then turns into what we talked about earlier, which is what else makes the vehicle stand out, you know, and I think that's going to be important you know, and just, moving forward for yeah, sure. Yeah, just a so. quick follow up on John's point is absolutely right. Like uh, people buying uh, electric pickups are not pickup buyers, right? Like that, that market is just... No. 
pickup buyers are not attracted to electric vehicles for the towing, just for the image, for, for a lot of reasons. And I think there's some interesting things if, if you look at the Rivian numbers. So the Rivian R1S, that's the three row SUV, is, is outselling the Rivian R1T, the sort of the midsize, however you want to characterize it, pickup, two to one, right? Hmm. Yeah. And so this, yeah. again, I know this is my theme for today, the third time I'm going to beat up the legacy automakers, is how did they not understand the pickup market, right? And that <laughs> that it was like, you know, that all these F-150 owners, you know, that have, are on their fourth one are going to run out to buy the electric version. No, right? Um, but also, why didn't GM come out with an electric Chevy Tahoe or whatever? Instead, they did a two Hummers, the Silverado, et cetera. Like the Kia EV9 is going, you know, its biggest issue this year. Um, we only have one month of sales. I, I think it's like 1100, something like that, right? Is going to be gearing up production. But, you know, the market loves big SUVs, right? So why didn't Ford and, and GM come out with, you know, Explorers and Tahoes and Expeditions that were electrified Instead, they went with the Silverado and the F-150 Lightning, and we all know that pickup buyers weren't going to buy them. Like, I just, again, it just like boggles my mind of what they were they were thinking. I, I honestly, but Lauren, I, think it, I don't think it's anything further than that's what they know. Like, they look at what they do best, and they were like, well, we, we do trucks. That's what we do. And we have cultivated a buying public that sees our brand in that way. You know, and yeah, they make money on Silverado, on Tahoe and Ex Expedition and everything else, but it's not what makes their volume. It's not what makes them who they are as a brand. So on one hand, it's almost like, do you give them credit for taking the risk and being gutsy about it? Like, I, I think Ford's positioning to say, we're going to call the Mach-E, the Mustang Mach-E and, and actually make the F-150, the F-150 Lightning. To a certain extent, I'd give them some credit for the fact that they made that leap. But then there's a line in the sand where you say, but you also didn't fundamentally understand like what you're describing what you should have come to market with that would have been the best selling option for you at the time. I, I agree that there should be a plug-in hybrid truck and that's where those should have started. Yeah. I, I don't, because of, I mean, pure physics is not on the yeah. side of trucks right now for being electrified. It just isn't. Yeah. So, I think there's a lot we just actually discussed right there. Um, no, I mean, what you're saying about the Rivian R1S is so true. It is the new Land Rover yeah. Range Rover. It is the new minivan. Yeah. I see them everywhere well, here. Minivan. Okay. I mean, <laughs> They're, I will say, uh, this is in my personal observations. This is limited data. Uh, there, I have seen a lot of people, generally women, which is great to see that that is uh, connecting with that demographic, buying large SUVs, usually with a bunch of kids in the back. They are usually going to a soccer game or they're taking all the kids up to go skiing here. But I mean, they are everywhere here. They are yeah, the new... Yeah, I just, I, I live out in... And it's a more attractive yeah, SUV yeah, than my Oh, for sure, you for know. sure. And, it, and it, I think it's a much less controversial design. It's a simple design, but I, the only thing kind of controversial about it is the headlights. Otherwise, it looks good. Uh, but what I think what's really funny going back to uh, also just real briefly around kind of pickup truck buyers and the Cybertruck, I know two contractors. One has like a diesel 3500 Ram dually, and he's a contractor. He uses the hell of it. And another has a F-350 King Ranch they won't shut up talking about the Cybertruck, which to me is the most bizarre thing I did not expect. 
the second part to that is going exactly to what you were saying, Matt, about like the timing of these vehicles released. Interest rates were really low. The F-150 Lightning taking these gambles and there was a lot of cars being sold. It didn't seem as wild. Now that's obviously changed. They're moving really slowly. And I, once again, we don't really know the volumes of the Cybertruck, but the fact that they're essentially Tesla's charge an upcharge of like $30,000 for these first models and are still moving them. Um, that kind of goes to your point, John, of just like being jealous of like, hey, it's it's obviously not our traditional buyers, but that's money coming in the door for kind of some absurd cars <laughs> or absurd truck. And there's, I don't know how big of a demand. I don't know. Originally, it said there's going to be like quarter million units a year. I don't know. But even if they hit 100,000 with how much they've inflated the price, that's not a bad bad place to be. Hey, hey Chase, um, just one, one. But yeah, Lauren, let's. Yeah, just one interesting update. So, you know, the, the lightning had a blowout quarter, right? So despite everything we've just we've just said, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ford sold 11,900 lightnings in, in Q4, uh, over 24,000 for the year, which puts it in the top 10 uh, e- EVs for the year. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know if they were just giving it away at the dealers because of all the bloated inventory, um, but, um, but, you know. I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts on that one, John, because I even just saw someone, I think it was on Twitter, posted that they were finally able to get a pro with a $15,000 dealer mark down. Yeah. It probably depends where the country like you're closer at. closer to the original yeah. $40,000 price they had yeah, yeah. Ma- Look, uh, mentioned. As yeah. you guys know, EV adoption is happening on a regional yeah. basis. There's hot spots across the country. Mm-hmm. And if you're in for one sure. of the dead spots and a dealer's had this thing sitting on his lot for five or six yeah. months, he's got to get yeah. rid of it. He has. He's floor planning yeah. it, right? It's costing him money just sitting there. So, uh, yeah, depending on, you know, where in the country you're talking about, you're probably going to find screaming deals and you're going to probably find instances where you just can't get your hands on one. They're so hot. But, you would, know, would I, I want to go back to one one thing that, that Lauren raised that, that I, I thought was pretty interesting. You know, I was going through Tesla's financials and it was like, when did they start making a profit? Well, it was mid 2019. I mean, a full yeah. year gap profit. Right. And it wasn't until they started selling 80,000 EVs a quarter, 50,000 of which were the Model 3. So to me, that's the bogey yeah. that the rest of the industry has to hit. If you're not At selling 50,000 a quarter, that works out to about 17,000 a month. Kiss it goodbye from a profit standpoint. Until you crack that code, you're not going to make money on your EV. Because here's Tesla. They're the best, the best at it. And they've got EV credits and they got their own charging network and they're selling insurance and all the every. And it took them 17,000 a month of the Model 3 before they turned a net profit. So as, as, as good as we might have seen Ford come up in uh, the last quarter with the F-150, the numbers I just cited shows how far the legacies have got to go. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because obviously like a lot of the headlines with the startups like Lucid and Rivian right now, are, they're all talking about the Rivian R2 or Lucid's Model 3 fighter. It's like clearly that's what they're trying to shoot for to get to that well, profitability. They right. They clearly well, know. I, I think that's uh, <laughs> true. But it, I think it also kind of speaks to the thing we've seen in the second half of the year is just money is a lot harder to come by. And the only interest that these like startups are going to get is if they have something that clearly can get them to profitability that someone will lend them money for, even if it's at a terrible interest rate. 
And yeah. I, I guess I'm curious if there's anything that just to kind of wrap up that one of the other cars I want to discuss about is the new uh, Chevy Blazer. But I think we're going to save that for the software section real quick. Uh, any other thoughts, John, Matt, Lauren, just kind of looking back on the second half of this year when it comes to kind of EV sales? I mean, I'll just I'll just uh, share my uh, EV pizza pie concept that, that yes, uh, I teased earlier on, which is. Um, you know, the, the EV sales pie has gone from, let's say, about a 12-inch pizza pie in, in, in 2019 to a 20-inch in, in 2023. But at the same time, we, like, doubled the number of slices of, of, of how that pizza pie is being sliced up and the number of models, right? And so when, when people talk about, you know, year over year or quarter or quarter over or sales and stuff like that. What, what they don't realize is like the model S four or five years ago had like no competitors in sort of the luxury premium mid to large size electric sedan. There are like nine competitors to the model S now, right? Just to use that as an example. And so the, the reality the net of this is, is that some models, uh, are like continuing to grow and some are facing fierce competition for similar EV models. And the, and the, and even though the pie is growing, it's not growing enough for the model sort of sales to grow. Right. And so, you know, what has been missing is just sort of the competitive factor when it can, you know, a few years ago when consumer wanted an EV, you know, it was like Tesla, Nissan Leaf, like whatever it is. Right. Now they're like 90, you know, EVs between plug-in hybrids and, and BEVs, right? And so, you know, the, what we have to look at is sort of on a comparison basis, like in, in particular segments, how are sort of models doing and, and, and growing and that type of thing. Um, and so I, I, I guess I, I've got a question that kind of keeps the metaphor right. going. So we're at this auto yeah. pizza party. And the linebacker, Joe Tesla, just comes in, takes his huge thing and leaves yeah. what's left. Who, who, is, who isn't starving uh, that's going to go for a slice? The Hyundai Motor Group. Yeah. Hyundai Kia. So Hyundai, that's exactly <laughs> what I was Kia thinking. Hyundai Kia Genesis um, are um, going to be, uh, and I think I haven't added it up yet, but I think they'll be, they might be number two this year as well. If not, they will be um, in 2024. So you go Tesla. No, already are. Yeah. 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 Already are in the, in the U.S. Yeah, market. in the U.S. Yeah, so you know Tesla's like out there on its own island, right? Of of EV sales, and then the Hyundai Motor Group, and then the reality is, uh, Rivian probably won't make it, but they have a shot at the number number three spot if if the R1S sales. But but you know Ford um, will will you know could have blowout with the Mustang Mach-E and, and that type of thing. So it'll be interesting, but, uh, and GM might not even make the top five. Uh, right. Wow. Um, it's like, which is, yeah, sorry, Mara, but you married, but you're not going to be number one, uh, in 2025. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. She's getting boxed out at this yeah. pizza party. Yeah. This yeah, is my she new was favorite. Not invited <laughs> she wasn't invited. Yeah. Yeah. She got the wrong directions. Um, with, I guess, uh, saying all of that, uh, I think one final thing to mention that's really interesting that's kind of officially happened in the last month. We've been talking about North America and talking about EVs, talking about the other Joe Tesla linebacker out there globally is BYD. 
And that wraps up the first part with our panel. Today, we've taken a deep dive into the electric vehicle landscape as it stood in 2023. We started by exploring the impact of the North American charging standard on electric vehicles, a significant milestone that has truly reshaped the charging experience for electric vehicle owners. Then, we discussed the rollout of the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program, aka NEVI, a key initiative that's paving the way for a more connected and accessible EV network across the nation. We also examined U.S. auto sales and the impressive growth rate of electric vehicle sales last year, a clear indicator of the shifting preferences of consumers and the growing reliability of EV technology. And finally, we analyzed the influence of legacy automakers in the market, modern electric innovation disrupting traditional manufacturing. But hold on to your seats, because in the second part of our panel conversation, we're taking our discussion globally. We'll explore the role of Chinese EVs, not just on the world stage, but how they're impacting the North American auto market. This segment of the industry has been buzzing with activity, and we can't wait to delve into it. Then, we're going to look at how software is revolutionizing the way electric vehicles operate, and more intriguingly, how consumers interact with and perceive their cars. The digital transformation of the auto industry is upon us, and it promises to be a game changer. And of course, no discussion would be complete without our panel sharing their predictions for 2024. What does the future hold for EVs? Are we on the cusp of another major shift in the automotive industry? Our experts will weigh in with their insights and forecasts. So make sure to tune in to the second part of this panel. You won't want to miss it. Thank you for listening, and until next time.